If that's not a reminder that we are fully in the Christmas season, I don't know what is, right? I mean, when I watch something like that, this smorgasbord of Christmas movies that have come out over the generations, I am reminded of what a happy season it is that we're in, right? I mean, we just watched Elf this week. I'm still laughing. I mean, I'm still laughing. I've seen it a hundred times. It's still funny to me. And we're going to watch all the Christmas movies over the next few weeks, and every single part of this season just kind of seems to throw out to us happiness and joy, right? I mean, joy is not one of those words that we have to try to extract from the season, try to find in it. It's just there all the time. Everything this culture throws at us from a seasonal perspective in Christmas is without a doubt filled with joy in this particular season. Now, when you're dealing with words like peace or you're dealing with words like hope or even words like love, they're a little bit more difficult in a season like this because you know they're part of the season, but they're not what's thrown at you constantly. I mean, peace, let's just be honest, right? What's peaceful about the Christmas season other than a very, very short little three-minute candlelight experience on Christmas Eve, right? The rest is just chaos. So when we're dealing with a word like peace in the Advent journey, we really have to wrestle with that and kind of go, where are you going to find it and how are you going to find it? And hope and love, they're part of the season But they're so intangible in terms of a cultural context because what are you putting your hope in and your love in and where's love coming from? And we're like, oh, I don't know. And so from a cultural perspective, words like hope and love and peace are difficult to kind of really get a handle on in the Advent journey, but not joy. I got to be honest, not joy. The culture gets joy. Uh, We all get joy during the Christmas season because everything just seems so happy. And I'll tell you why we get joy in the Christmas season so well. The dictionary has a a definition for joy. I love its definition. Here's what it says. Here's how it defines the word joy in the dictionary. The emotion of great delight or happiness caused by something exceedingly good or satisfying. I love that definition. That is joy. You want to know what joy is? Here's joy. The emotion of delight that you feel when something exceedingly good is experienced by you. So now we start asking, why is Christmas so full of joy naturally in our cultural context? I'll tell you why. Because there are plenty of exceedingly good things to experience. I mean, Who doesn't love the perfect cup of hot cocoa with marshmallows and whipped cream and your parents actually saying yes to that? Who doesn't love that? Who doesn't love a great Christmas party with extraordinary foods laid out? Who doesn't love enjoying friends and family as long as they're the right side of the family, right? Who who doesn't love... Uh, opening a gift. Who doesn't love that? Who doesn't love opening a gift and going, what am I going to discover? Who doesn't love the, the Christmas trees and the lights, not putting them up, just experiencing them after they're up? I mean, these are the kinds of things that are exceedingly good. And so we experience the emotion 
of delight, the emotion of wonder, and we call that uh, joy. We have joy. So there's a part of me that kind of goes, you know, as far as the Christmas season goes, when we get to the word uh, joy in the Advent journey, no real reason to kind of spend a lot of time on it, right? Because we all got joy. I mean, the Christmas season's full of it. But, but I will tell you what I have experienced and why we aren't just going to close shop right now when I've gone four minutes into the message time and go have a, have a wonderful season because joy is everywhere. Because I have found something interesting about joy. That joy in my world is extremely fragile and fleeting. It is this thing that I find, but when I find it, I almost have this deep sense that it's going to go away very soon. Like, I, I, I have it, but as soon as the exceedingly good moment changes, then so is this going to flutter away. Uh, like this fragile reality that you get to experience in momentary bursts, but in the long run, when it's here, it's just waiting to leave anyways. This was brought to my attention very clearly yesterday. Uh, I had spent the week dealing with the concept of joy, meditating on it, studying it, looking at it. What does it mean? How does it play? What's it got to do with Christmas? What's it got to do with Christ? How does it work? And so uh, I, I've been meditating on the things we're going to be dealing with today. So Joy was very much a part of my experience this week. And as I was entering into this weekend, I knew that I was going to enter into this space. And one thing I was convinced of, that the joy that had kind of emerged in my life throughout the week, I really wanted to bring that to the table here with you guys. Because it's got to spill out of me as I deal with this issue. So I'm getting in the car last night to come to church to start the journey with joy. And I have, I mean, I got it covered, man. Eyes fixed on Jesus, gospel before me, joy, the concept, Christmas. I'm ready. And as we're getting ready to get in the car, uh, my kids are loading. And to load my kids takes 29 minutes just to get them out the kitchen to the car. And one of them was lingering longer than they should. We were already running a little bit behind the schedule I'd intended. So I said to my dear um, kid, listen, I'm going to count to six, and you better be in that car in six seconds. Otherwise, and then I listed the sequence of events that would take place if that does not happen, many of which were losing significant parts of their lives and body parts. So, um, no, the body parts are not part of it. But the, the, so, so here's the deal, right? So you, you know what you expect, right? If you give the six seconds, I did six instead of three because from the kitchen to the car is a, a decent distance. And so I'm like, you know, I'll give you a solid three extra seconds. And so I start counting loudly, one, two, and, and what my kids usually do is on the first second or two, especially when they have six, they do the walk thing because they're kind of, they're kind of now it's a game, right? And then the last three seconds, they're going to sprint the last bit, dive into the car and make it at the last second because I always give a half second on the end. And so they, they know how it goes. Well, well, this particular kid today decided that it would be a good idea to do it differently. So they start walking. I go, three. They're still walking. I go, four. They're still walking. They're not even halfway there. I go, five. They're not going to make it now in a second. I've already calculated that. But I really don't want to go through the hassle of the 29 things I've listed out. They were really just hypothetical because there was no way the kid was not going to make it to the car. Except for this scenario. Then I start going, shoot. I should have kept the list shorter and made them bigger things. And now all this is going through my mind. And I'm telling you, man, I, I get to five. I go, I'm going to go five and a half, five and a half. I shout now, five and three quarters. I'm like, it's sprint time now. Sprinting, sprinting. No movement, just walking. And finally I go, fine, six. And my, my kid's not in the car. So I go, you're not in the car, man. And my kid turns around and goes, I'm trying. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, that, is, that, that goes nowhere for me. That was the wrong answer. Fall down and faint, have a convulsion, do something, pretend, but don't turn and look at me and go, I'm trying. So I go, you're not trying, and I turn around, and like literally in my house, I'm like, why? Why do they do this to me? Why now? Why on the way to church? Why? And I realized in that moment, as my wife's upstairs, she's like, because they don't honor us. And I'm like, no joke, right? And I'm like, I'm like, oh my gosh. Every 
bit of joy that I have mustered up over my 40 long years went away that second. It was all gone. There was zero, zero emotion of delight due to exceeding goodness. And I got in the car, driving over here and going, that's, that's our joy, man. Just when we have it, it is as fragile and fleeting as anything on the planet, just like that. Why? Why is that? Why is it that we have these momentary experiences of the emotion of delight uh, due to something exceedingly good, and yet it fleets from us like that? Why? Well, the answer is actually not that complicated. It really isn't. It's described perfectly for us in our human story as it relates to our story with God in the Scriptures. When we actually understand our human story, we should look at joy and go, I get it. I, I get why it comes and why it goes. I get why it's fragile and fleeting. I understand now. You see, when we were first created, many of you have heard me say, we were created by God for an extraordinary purpose, an extraordinary reality. We were created to experience the fullness of relationship with God, to know Him in perfection, to know His freedom to such an extent that we were absolutely full of it, and to make His freedom known, to, to image Him. You've heard me say that. But one of the consequences of that kind of relationship with God that we find in the early part of our human story is this. It's something we don't notice right off the bat, but it's actually there in the whole story. When we were first created, before we fell into the realities in which we walked, we actually had nothing. We had nothing. We were literally to the point where the Bible describes us as naked, right? I mean, we didn't have clothing that we wore. We didn't have stuff that was ours. We didn't work a piece of land that was ours. We didn't produce things. We, we didn't actually functionally have anything. We only had our creator. That's all we had. The only thing that mattered to us, the only thing that was ours, the only thing we possessed, the only thing we experienced as great and good and wondrous was our creator and all that he produced for us so that we could experience him through the things he produced and provided. So our initial human experience was that our emotions of delight, our emotions of wonder, were found in the one exceedingly good thing that we knew, and that was our Creator. And so, because our Creator was consistently exceedingly good, that there was no gap in the experience of, wow, exceedingly good, our emotion of delight had no gap either. There was no gap in our joy because what we had placed our joy in, what we had observed as exceedingly good, we only had one thing. Only one thing was to us exceedingly good and it remained exceedingly good for as long as it was. So there we were, exceedingly good every day, exceedingly wondrous every day, emotion of delight born in me, expression of joy, I rejoice in my Creator. There's our story where it begins. But as you well know, our story moves on from there. The enemy of God convinces us that a better story for us than experiencing all of our delight, all of our joy in our creator would be to actually produce a story for ourselves that we create so that we could dictate our destiny and so that we could ultimately guarantee our future because it would be in our hands instead of in the hands of another. See, there is this deep sense within us that if my, if my reality, my future, my destiny, my joy, my peace, anything is in the hands of another, it's more unpredictable than if it's in my hands, right? If I've got it, then I can control it. So we were told in the garden, if you eat of this fruit that he told you not to, you'll know what he knows, you'll be like him, and then you can dictate your own story, man. That's a much more predictable idea if indeed you are as exceedingly good and powerful and wonderful as he is. But when we ate of the fruit, we discovered we got the knowledge of good and evil, no doubt, but we did not get the divine power. We did not become gods. We did not become uh, these creatures that suddenly turned divine and had the power to do anything we wanted, any way we wanted. So we suddenly had sin and death enter into our story, but we could not control sin and death. It controlled us. The Bible says we became enslaved to sin and death. So now suddenly we found ourselves in a horrid predicament. 
because we had lost this exceedingly wondrous and good relationship with our Creator. We had been separated from that by sin and death, but we also did not gain the power to control. So we found ourselves in that typical human story that we all find ourselves entering into at some point in our lives, where we are chasing after things we cannot control. It's kind of a weird deal we do, man. We call it now culture the rat in the cage syndrome, right? I mean, I'm just running, running, running to try to attain things that ultimately I already know are meaningless because I've read the books and all the old people tell me I'm old and I'm about to die and it's all meaningless, but I'm still gonna chase and get it because they don't know what they're talking about. I know better because I'm 22, right? I mean, that's kind of us, right? That's a whole psyche. And so we race, 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 race and pursue and, and Solomon, uh, way back, thousands of years ago, called this the chasing after the wind. It's what we do. We chase after the wind. We chase after the wind. Can you, can you imagine how ridiculous that is? Some little kid like, what are you doing? I'm chasing the wind. I'm going to catch it any second now. You're like, let me explain something about the wind, okay? Here's the deal. And that's what we do. So here's what we figured out in our humanity. If I can control and, and I, can, I can set my relationships on the right course, if I can make them wonderful, and then I can control my resources and I can make them uh, full and, and, and awesome, then I can control my circumstances. You see, if I have enough resources and my relationships are what I need them to be, then my circumstances will always be wonderful. And so I fight to extract from other human beings and to extract from this planet and from all of you as much resources for myself and as much relational love and care for myself so that I can control my circumstances. Because if my circumstances are controllable, then I can keep them good, right? That's our whole goal. Keep the circumstances good and comfortable. Why? Because what I'm chasing after is an emotion of delight due to the exceeding goodness of my life. So if I want to be full of joy, all I need to do is control my circumstances to be exceedingly good. And then my joy will be consistent and I will be happy. And we even put it into our statements as countries and nations and worlds. Ours is awesome, right? You have the right to pursue your happiness. I mean, you're an American for crying out loud. You got the right to pursue your happiness. Because if you find your happiness, how will you do that? You will be happy when your relationships and your resources are such that they can create circumstances that are comfortable so that you will remain happy because your circumstances are exceedingly good. That's why the Christmas season is so full of joy because for a short, brief moment in our crazy rat race of a life, we get, give, are given a little vacation time, we're given a Christmas tree, some warm hot chocolate, and a few good movies, and it feels exceedingly good because frankly the rest of the planet is exceedingly not so good. So that's all we really need to feel good is a couple of good movies. <laughs> it's pretty pathetic, I think, kind of, you know, it's like, wow, that's it? That's exceedingly good. Yep, that's exceedingly good because we don't have much else. The rest feels like a spinning wheel, man. And then along the way, we bump into this thing called the gospel, the good news of Jesus. The wonder that we are stuck in a rat race, enslaved to sin, chasing after the wind. We come awake to that reality. We see our life for what it really is. We see what happened to us. We hear the story in Genesis of our fall. We recognize our sin. We go, wow, I cannot control all of this. That's why I'm regularly finding myself so miserable because even when I'm not miserable, I'm just five days away from being miserable because one of the circumstances is gonna come around and kill me. And so I don't wanna live that life anymore. It's not working out for me. And so I would much rather find myself back connected to this wonderful original intent to have this relationship with God that will ultimately produce in me the experience of someone who is exceedingly good. And so I will have a continual emotion of delight, which will be joy. That sounds awesome. Initially, when we come to the gospel, it's still a self-reality. We discover that's a better life for us than this one, so we take it, and that's a good thing. Jesus says, yes, my way, my life is better for you. So we go, that's awesome. So we jump into the gospel. We jump into Jesus. We, we receive him as our Lord and Savior. We do the whole thing. Where we're like, man, awakening, great awakening. We might travel for a little while, and then here's what happens. We have this incredible experience of freedom, right? We, 
we feel it. We're like, wow, I, I get it now. The awakening is incredible. And then Tuesday comes around. And, and we go to work and we go, shoot, my boss is still here. I thought when I came to know Jesus, he would disappear, she would disappear. And then we, we come home and your kids are still acting out and you're like, whoa, I, I thought, I mean, I, I, I know Jesus now. I thought he was going to come in my home and make all my kids wonderful. No, 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 they're, they're still crazy. And then that night you're chatting with your spouse and clearly they don't know Jesus yet because they don't agree with what you're saying. Yeah, no, no, they, they do, but I don't understand. I thought, I thought this would now turn out to be perfect. See, we have this idea that when we come to know the gospel, that suddenly life on planet Earth is going to dramatically change and we are going to experience the fullness of our restored reality. We're going to suddenly have a wonderful life, a wonderful life with wonderful things and wonderful circumstances and wonderful relationships. And frankly, I will have some wonderful resources, right? Because God is good and he's our father and he loves us. And so that's what's going to happen. And, and we find ourselves in an interesting dilemma because though we know intellectually that it is now our creator that is enough for us, that our creator is the one in which we find our joy, because we've spent our whole lives pursuing relationships and, and resources and circumstances to control them, to make them great, we are bent on that habitual reality. Even when we discover God, our first reaction to God is, you're wonderful, now I'm, I'm assuming you're going to make this wonderful. And when that doesn't turn out the way we thought it was, we start getting really confused. I, I don't understand why God hasn't um, fixed this. It seems odd. We find ourselves getting a disease we're not supposed to have. Isn't that only for the other people? We find ourselves in the middle of a relational breakdown that shouldn't be happening. We go, oh, I, I, thought, I thought this doesn't happen in my world. One of our kids decides to live their own life and do their own thing. And we go, whoa, 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 I, I, that's not supposed to happen in my world. And so what begins to happen is because the God that we've discovered is still intangible to us and the resources, relationships, and circumstances are still tangibly before us, we start living under the assumption that God now is going to help us control these. We just shift control from ourselves to God so we start blaming Him instead of blaming ourselves, right? I was trying to control them. I couldn't. I discovered God. He's awesome. He loves me. I'm rescued. My eternity is set. But frankly, while on planet Earth, I've got to figure out. My job is to figure out how to do what I'm supposed to do for him so he can control these. And so as much as we know Jesus and as much as we have eternal life and as much as we have been rescued and as much as we've discovered all of that, we still have not shifted our focus Onto finding our delight in the exceeding goodness of our Creator because we are more interested, frankly, in the provision itself rather than in the provider himself. Because the provision's more tangible. I'm not confused about this. It's not like I'm like, how could you find your joy and provision when you know the provider? It's easy. The provider's invisible. I don't see him. I see this stuff. This stuff's here on Wednesday. Okay, so it's easy for me to look at this stuff. When I wake up in the morning, God isn't standing in front of me, shining brightly and going, look, I am exceedingly good. No, for, standing in front of me is a six-year-old going, where's my breakfast? <laughs> so, so then I've, I've got to deal with that right there. And I go, what the, what on earth? Why are you here? It's five. Go back to bed. And I'm gone with exceedingly good, as is the emotion of delight. And that's our reality, folks. So we live in this place where as much as we want to experience our joy from something that's consistently exceedingly good, we measure, listen now, we measure the goodness of God by the production of circumstances, resources, and relationships. We say, if these are going well, then God is good. And if these are going badly, then God is exceedingly forgetful, right? I mean, he's not bad, we know that, but he's forgetful. Where are you? Or, if God isn't forgetful, if these are going bad, then I'm doing something wrong, right? I've, I've ticked him off, so he's just punishing me. So as soon as I can figure out what I'm doing wrong, we're obsessed with like, what am I doing wrong? Where's the sin? I don't know. I don't understand. I'm going to find it. I'm so sorry. What do I do? Fix it, fix it, fix it. And that's where we live. So we find ourselves 
on the roller coaster of joy that is fleeting and fragile because it comes in moments where these things, oh, they're beautiful, oh, delightful, exceedingly good. You are exceedingly good because you control these. And then when these go badly, we're like, oh, I'm depressed. Where are you? What have I done? And there's our joy. And, and the irony is as much as we know Jesus, nothing has changed for us in terms of our experiential joy because our emotion of delight is still only found when we see something exceedingly good and we still measure exceedingly good by the circumstances, relationships, and resources around us. And so God is measured by these guys because he controls them. And we find ourselves there. That's where I find myself. And then into that story that I've just described comes Christmas every year, December 25th. It's like a cycle, man. And it starts around December 1st here at Mosaic because we get really excited about Christmas. And in Mosaic, we start thinking about it in like August, sometimes July, maybe June even, because the weather doesn't change so we can think about it all year long here, right? <laughs> we, don't, we don't need the weather to tell us Christmas is coming because it's hot. It's always hot. So we start thinking about it. We start preparing for it. And every year, Christmas rolls around. And from a cultural perspective, Christmas is designed to bring us out of the rat race for a momentary delight to remind us that life isn't always horrible, right? And that love still matters and you should love each other and giving is still important. And Christmas is designed in our cultural context just to remind humanity you're not that horrible. But for us who know Jesus, that is not why Christmas comes around every year. It doesn't come around just to remind us that life isn't horrible, just to remind us that we should still be good, just to pull us out for a moment out of the rat race to kind of go, there is something beyond this. That's not what Christmas is here to do for us. Christmas comes to us every year in sequence to do something wondrous in our lives. Christmas is designed to call us as Christ followers out of this focal point that these things, the realities of our relationships, our resources, and our circumstances are measuring the exceeding goodness of our Creator and to say, whoa, stop with these, ignore these. They are simply a consequence of a dying planet and the death and sin that's on planet Earth, and they are actually irrelevant to the bigger story. His exceeding goodness is not because of these things, his exceeding goodness is because of something utterly different. And then the Christmas story emerges and goes, let's deal with his exceeding goodness beyond the resources, relationships, and circumstances in which you live. And we go, what does that mean? And we start the Christmas story, right? And the Christmas story, though it covers the span of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, it is found in its most sort of acute form in the, the beginning of the Gospels. That's where the Christmas story begins as we know it, the one where the, the Messiah emerges on planet Earth. And as Jesus enters planet Earth as a baby in the midst of some miraculous circumstances, we start watching the human beings that are experiencing that and we start seeing the emotion of delight emerge because it seems there was an anticipation for something coming that God had promised that they are now seeing with their eyes and it is exceedingly good to them that this is happening because they've been waiting for it. We find this most beautifully described in the person of a man named Simeon. So grab your Bibles if you want or just listen in either way. But we're going to go to Luke chapter 2 real quick. And in Luke chapter 2, the baby uh, Jesus has just been born. Uh, he's on planet Earth now. We've seen some extraordinary, miraculous events already. And uh, Mary and Joseph are bringing Jesus to the temple uh, for the traditional blessing that needs to occur uh, with a small child. And it tells us in Luke chapter 2, verse 25... These words. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. So we meet a man named Simeon. He is waiting, has waited his whole life for the consummation of Israel, the restoration of Israel, the rescue of Israel. And he's been waiting his whole life because others before him have waited their whole lives. The people of God have been waiting for generations and generations and generations and generations and generations for the fulfillment of the promises of God that were exceedingly good but are not felt realities yet because they're still traveling. 
And so we get to this point and Simeon says, man, I've been waiting my whole life. Now, Simeon in particular had a unique experience which makes his waiting all the more sort of anticipated, right? Listen to this. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when his parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the customs of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. And his father and his mother, that's Joseph and Mary, marveled at what was said about him. See, this is, the, this is the kind of stuff we see in the story. Every moment in the story, there are these emotions of great delight because they are seeing exceedingly good things occur. And as we follow the story, you got shepherds marveling at things. You got wise men marveling at things. Uh, you've got everybody involved in the story that are watching Jesus emerge and are anticipating the coming. You see them experiencing joy, the emotion of delight due to an event or reality or person that is exceedingly good. And joy is born in the Christmas season. As we follow the story of Jesus and he grows up and he gains for himself some disciples, some followers, those disciples follow him for a couple of years and then they watch Jesus fulfill the promises of God in the Old Testament through his life, his death, his resurrection from the dead. He meets with them after his resurrection and declares to them, listen boys, here's the deal. Here's how it's playing out. I came to rescue your soul from death. I came to redeem you, to buy you back from the dead where you found yourself. And now that your soul is rescued, I could simply take you back up to the kingdom of God, this place we call heaven where God resides, and you could enjoy experiencing the full expression of your redemption. But that would leave you without fulfilling the purpose to which I created you. So here's the deal. You were created in the garden to know me fully and to image me, to make me known. I'm going to let you live out your life on planet Earth and during that life, instead of living for planet Earth, instead of pursuing relationships and, uh, and resources and circumstances to control them, they become opportunities for you to live for the kingdom of God and to make me known. So they only become relevant insofar as they are yours to make me known, whether in wealth or poverty, whether in imprisonment or free, whether hungry or thirsty or, or well-fed. It doesn't matter. What matters is in each of those circumstances, you can make me known. So we go, wow, now I get why I'm still on planet Earth. Now I get why Paul says there's going to be a great battle internally and externally because you're still in the planet of death, in the body of death, but your spirit has been made alive. So you're going to fight with the same things the body of death has always wanted. And when it control this and, and this and this, and you're going to have to go, no, hold, we don't need to control those because we have been rescued by the exceedingly good God who created us. So these are now just opportunities by which we make him known. And that's our battle, constantly back and forth. We are torn and tempted into these, but we are invited out of them to fix our eyes there again and go, oh, these do not dictate how good he is. What dictates his goodness is what he's done for me already. So what Paul begins to, what the disciples begin to discover is that if they fix themselves on Jesus, these things become an opportunity, a platform. And so we find all 11 of the guys that were with Jesus, minus Judas, of course, who was the 12th, those 11 guys start living their lives so crazy that actually they all, minus John, lose their lives in dramatic martyr experiences for the sake of Christ, some at a young age. And so you literally see them saying, I will lose everything for the sake of Christ because nothing matters anymore except for Christ. 
There's a man named Saul who's traveling on the road to Damascus. His passion is to protect the institution of the Jewish leadership because he believes that that is how he protects God. He meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. Jesus changes his life. He becomes one of the most outspoken gospel carriers to the Gentile people that we have ever seen. His name becomes Paul. He writes most of the New Testament. And in that writing, he actually declares it in verbal language what it is he and the other disciples were experiencing. In Philippians chapter 3, he writes these words, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. See, Paul wrote and said, I, I get it now, man. All this stuff that I spent a lifetime obsessing over, trying to control, then thought maybe God can control it for me and I was disappointed when he didn't. I realized that stuff is not my life. My life is here and this stuff is an opportunity to make this beautiful. Bring on the disease and watch me make the gospel beautiful. Bring on the wealth and watch me make the gospel beautiful. Bring on the poverty and watch me make the gospel beautiful. See, this doesn't matter anymore. It's beautiful because he does it, but it's not the provision that is exceedingly good. It's the provider, and not because of what he's providing today, but because of what he's already provided for me. I was with a friend yesterday. Uh, we were doing some stuff, Brooke and I and the family, doing a little service project, and it was a cleaning project. We were cleaning a building, right? My kids loved that, um, but they, they did great. And um, Brooke loves cleaning, okay? I, I, I don't, okay? So we're at the end of the day and we've cleaned for a couple of hours and he says, man, thank you so much for cleaning our building. And, and Brooke goes, I love cleaning. And I go, I don't. And he looks at us and I go, look, here's how Brooke and I function. It's real simple. We love Jesus. We love the beach. That's where our commonality ends. Everything else in our lives is different. When she's hot, I'm cold. When she's happy, I'm sad. When she's mad, I'm ready. When she's strong, I'm weak. I mean, it's literally, with Brooke and I, you could literally go, uh, blue, red. I mean, it's just, it's just like that. Jesus, Jesus. Oh, oh, yes. Beach, beach, yes. That's it. That's where it ends. So he looks at me and he says, so you guys didn't, didn't play the 80-20 rule, right? Uh, apparently there's an 80-20 rule out there that says you're supposed to have 80% of things in common and 20% of things not in common. That's what they call compatibility. And I look at him and I say, no, no, we, we did. We did. You see, because Jesus makes up 99.9% .9 of the story. And then the beach makes up 0.1% of the story. And then the rest of the story is this minuscule amount on the back end. You think it's uh, about amount of things. It's not. It's about magnitude of things. And Jesus covers the bases. We got Jesus in common. We got everything in common. And, and it just came to me in that moment. And I kind of realized that. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I have so much in common with my wife. It's, it's beautiful. I, I never knew that. And so that was a, a big moment for me. But, but here's the thing. It was a real awakening for me too because I realized that's how life should be, isn't it? That's what Paul's saying. That when you have the reality of Christ in your life, you know what he's done for you, not what he's doing for you, what he will do for you, what he's done for you, then he is already exceedingly good and you are already uh, full of the emotion of delight and joy is expressed. So Paul says, when you and I understand not what God is doing for us, but what he has already done for us, then the only possibility is the sense of exceeding delight because something exceedingly good is always happening to you because it's already happened to you. Paul writes it this way in the book of Romans. Uh, he writes to the church in Rome and he tells them this in Romans chapter 5. Listen to this. He says, here's what God's done for us, so let's, let's get this right. Let's, let's fix our eyes on this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, this is Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been made right by faith, that's the word justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into the grace, listen now, in which we stand. You see, that's not a future tense 
That is a present tense. We are standing in the grace that we've obtained through the work of Jesus on our behalf. Look at this. Into the grace in which we stand and we rejoice. Rejoice is a word for expressing joy. When you hear a joyce, that's joy expressed, okay? So we rejoice, we express joy. Listen to this. In hope of the glory of God. We are not hoping in what God will do for us. We are hoping in God himself that God's promise will be enough for us because it's already been made and already been expressed in the work of Jesus Christ. So our hope is now in the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice, express joy in our sufferings. What? Hold, hold. God is good. He's dead. I shouldn't suffer. No, 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 no. Paul writes and says, no, no, we rejoice even when the circumstances, relationships, and resources aren't what they should be, and we suffer as a result, either because of persecution or because of the planet of death doing what the planet of death does, right? When we suffer, we rejoice. Why? We express joy. Because the only way you'd express joy if you suffer is if, if, if suffering is exceedingly good, right? Because what is joy? The emotion of delight when we experience something exceedingly good. So how is suffering exceedingly good? I, I don't get it. Watch. Paul describes it. He says... Because we know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been, not will be, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Lots of has-beens, right? Already got, check, already got, check, already got, check. There is no will fix, will make happy, will do. Because now when you're suffering, you can find exceeding goodness in the suffering because the suffering is producing a story in you that God promised he is writing to finish in you. So when I am suffering, I go, you're just finishing the story, aren't you? Yes, I am. You're so awesome, man. Wow, bring it on, suffer more. Oh, I just won the lottery. I'm a multi-trillionaire. You're finishing the story in me, aren't you? Yeah, baby. Bring it on. I'll show you how to handle wealth when you know Jesus. You see, it doesn't matter anymore what happens here. What matters is that everything is exceedingly wondrous because he has already done what he's promised to do. So watch. Paul doesn't, Paul's not done. Don't get me wrong. Listen to this. He says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person one might die for. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners or enemies of God, Christ died for us. So we hate God. We're his enemy. Christ dies for us. And through his death, we are reconciled to God. Then it says this, since, therefore... We have been justified or made right by his death, his blood. Much more, or how much more, shall we be saved from him, uh, I mean by him, from the wrath of God. So if God rescued us when we hated him, how much more will he not keep his wrath from us because we now belong to him? So Paul's kind of using an argument. You were terrible, he loved you, now you're his child, and you really think he's going to like punish you now? I mean, what's going on, man? We're not stupid people. This is an obvious answer, right? Take a look at this. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, while we hated him and we were his enemies, Christ died the death of the son of the father. The triune God was ripped in pieces when the son was separated from the father. He did all that for us while we hated him. He made his enemies, his friends, and his family. It's crazy, right? If he did all that while we hated him, then how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? Now listen to this. More than that, we also rejoice, there it is, expressing joy in what? In God. There it is, not in his stuff, in his provision, in God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have reconciliation. Paul says, well, look, when you get what he's done for you, he is exceedingly good, and the emotion of, of, of wonder, the emotion of delight is born and joy is yours. And the joy is con as consistent as the exceedingly good thing is. 
and how consistent is his exceeding goodness, well, it's already been done. So it's not even like this, um, maybe, it's done. So it's, it's absolute. The trouble is not the consistency of what's exceedingly good. The trouble is where we measure exceeding goodness. And so we go, oh, he's exceedingly good. He's a, oh, that's not so good. Oh, turn, hey, hey, oh, he's exceedingly, oh, that's not so good. Why? Because the six-year-old's in front of you at three in the morning. Where's my breakfast, right? That, that's here. Crisis management diverts our eyes, and Christmas comes along and says, oh, shh, man, fix your eyes back there. This Christmas story is exceedingly good, so there should be exceeding joy. Paul understands this plight, and so he writes to us in the book of Philippians, again, to the church of Philippi. He wrote them a lot of cool stuff. Listen to this. In the book of Philippians chapter four, he says, look guys, I know how this rolls. I know how crazy life is, so do this. Philippians chapter four, verse four, rejoice, that is express joy in, rejoice in the Lord always. See, not in his stuff, rejoice in the Lord always, in his work of redemption, in his love for you. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your reasonableness or your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Let your gentleness be known because God is with you. Rejoice in God. Look what he says. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Stop trying to control this or stop trying to control God to control this. Just tell him what it is you're thinking in all this and leave it to him because he knows what you need. You think you know, but you don't because you don't know what the finished work is that he's trying to finish in you. So you think I need this, but he goes, no, I need to finish that. So we're going to need some of this. No, I don't like that. Yeah, I know, but that's how we refine. So just tell him what's up and leave it with him. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now look, he he goes, I know you guys, you're going to hear that, and then tomorrow you're going to think about the six-year-old again. So, so here's the deal. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if anything is excellent or there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things all the time. What you have learned from me and received and heard and seen in me, pr- uh, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The author of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. See, the authors of scripture are constantly telling us, dude, our joy being so fragile and fleeting is not the result of a life that isn't always exceedingly good. Our fleeting joy is the result of us diverting our eyes from what is already exceedingly good and believing that what needs to be exceedingly good are these things but these things no longer matter to us because our life is Christ now. I, I love my wife. I, I love being married, but, but that's just a platform in which to make Jesus king and make him known. I love her because I love him. If I stop loving him, I stop loving her. I just use her. I love my kids, but they're not mine. I just get to, I just get to live Christ in and through them. And, and I love them. So if God takes them from me, I will grieve because I love them. But as Paul said, I, I still lose nothing. It's crazy, but I lose nothing. Because they are only a consequence of his goodness to me. And so I find myself in this odd place where I go, God, you, your work of redemption, your rescue of my soul, your restoration of my purpose, you are enough for me. You are exceedingly good already. So everything else is just an expression of your already exceeding goodness. So when you give, blessed be your name. And when you take away, blessed be your name, man. And suddenly, emerging, because exceeding goodness is before me, is the emotion of delight, which we call joy. The Christmas season invites us to fix our eyes back on what is already exceedingly good so that our joy emerges not because of hot chocolate and Christmas movies and tinsel and lights and Christmas parties. Though those are joyful, I'll give you that. That our joy does not emerge because of those things, but that our joy emerges because we fix our eyes once again on the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that Jesus came for us. That he bothered to rescue us. 
that He's already rescued us and that our eternity and our temporal lives are now found in Him and so we are living eternal life now. The kingdom of God has come, hello. It's right here in me, it's called the Holy Spirit. He is living in and through me to make me an ambassador for the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is here on planet Earth, it's just not planet Earth. Planet Earth is the kingdom of darkness still and we are on mission here for that and so our joy is not found in planet Earth, it's found in the exceeding goodness of our Redeemer and Rescuer and when we do that, our joy will not be fragile. It will not be fleeting because He is not fragile and fleeting. But if our joy is found in the exceeding goodness of our circumstances, oh, you'll find joy, you will, because they get good sometimes. But man, it's as fragile as they are. And let's just be honest. Our humanity is fragile. Dude, you can live the perfect life practically and get sick like that. You can spend your life building a kingdom of wealth and it can get taken from you like that. This life is so ridiculously unpredictable. But our Redeemer is so ridiculously predictable. And if our joy is the fruit of His exceeding goodness, then our joy will sustain. Welcome to Christmas. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your incredible goodness to us, not in what You're currently doing for us or even in what You will do while we breathe air on planet Earth, but because of what You've already done for us. You came. You came for us. That was enough. You died for us, that was enough. You re resurrected for us, that was enough. You rescued our souls, that was enough. Then you restored our purpose to mission, that was enough. Then you told us we were going to live all of eternity in the full expression of our redemption, that was enough. And God, you have not done and finished the story yet because you are telling us that you are writing a story in and through us that you will complete before the day of Christ Jesus and that is enough. And God, may we fix our eyes on the gospel this Christmas, on the good news, Jesus, that you came for us, died for us, rose for us, redeemed us, rescued us, restored us, and will continue to make us more beautiful every day. And may we stare into our circumstances and our resources and our relationships as fragile as they are and remind them that they do not inform us about your goodness, that only your great work of redemption does that, and they do not inform us about our goodness, only your declared word does that, and that we find our joy not in their fickle, unpredictable nature, but we found our joy in the predictable, absolute wonder of your exceeding goodness for Fix our eyes, Spirit of God, on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. May the gospel be bright before us this Christmas. May we obsess over it and may it captivate our hearts so that we would be found in you fully, full of you and full of joy. And when the enemy tries to rob that joy by diverting our eyes, Spirit of God, quickly fix them back for us, would you? We love you, Jesus. We adore you, Spirit of God. We worship you, Father. God, you are exceedingly good.